I think there are two big mistakes we can make when it comes to the reading of David's life and his psalms. First of all, we can think it's just all about us. And we open the Bible and we instinctively think, well, where do I fit in here? We think it's simply a matter of putting ourselves in the shoes of the people speaking, involved, writing the scriptures and assuming that God will do for us what he did for them. Now, of course, our lives are not irrelevant to the story, as hopefully would have been uh, at least vaguely clear this week. But we're not the primary or initial focus of attention. And when we come to this psalm, Psalm 22, this is about the anointed one. And we are not the anointed one in quite the same way. There's a sense in which we will be, because in the kingdom to come, we will reign with him. But our anointing, if you like, as monarchs is only indirect, dependent upon his reign. The second mistake is to think it is all about Jesus and only about Jesus. Now that needs qualifying. I need to be careful in how we put that. Because in the end, the whole Bible is all about Jesus. Everything is pointing to him. He said, the scriptures testify about me. And uh, he explicitly includes, you remember that famous Bible study, set of Bible studies in Luke 24? You know, he says, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, each of those three words is like a sort of a bullet point, a header for the different sections of the Bible. Moses, the prophets, including the histories, and the Psalms, including all the sort of poetic uh, wisdom literature. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? Each of those sections of the Old Testament explicitly, deliberately included in testifying about me. And I do want to, to think about how Psalm 22 and indeed other psalms uh, do that. And we're going to finish up with that this morning. But, but we've got to start with the fen- f- uh, crucial fact that David was an historical figure who lived a life full of twists and turns, as we've already seen, and that that in itself is worthy of study, not as the end, but as certainly a crucial element of the journey. Because without that... We really will not comprehend or grasp the breadth, the depth, the extent of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, and as I do sort of training of preachers, particularly around Eastern Europe and and places, that is why one of the, the analogies... I use more and more in pretty much in every place I go is that as we're learning to grapple with the scriptures, to read them for ourselves, but also to teach the scriptures in our preparation, we must learn to use the brakes. As, you know, driving instructors, I mean, who can imagine a worse job in the world than being a driving instructor? Are there any driving instructors here? Well, you know, and rightly so. I mean, what a... What a... <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And I I would guess that the most common phrase for a driving instructor is, slow down. Is that that right? (laughs) Well, it's the same with the scriptures. Slow down. So we mustn't ignore how things are fulfilled in Christ, nor 
how they impact us, far from it, and we're not going to today, but we mustn't jump too quickly, either to us or to the Lord Jesus, because we fail to do justice to all the different elements in what God has revealed. There's too much treasure to find on the way. Having said that, I I want to start this morning by speaking a little bit personally, so I'm completely going against my first rule, but then I'm in charge. Um, And I want to consider just the question of God's dangerous callings. Because one of the, the sort of perennial problems that has exacerbated my own depression no end has been what I might describe as a fear of God. And I don't mean by that a holy fear of God. I I mean an anxiety about God as we walk the pilgrimage with God. I'm just worried what he's going to do next. I'm actually sometimes frightened of God. I don't know, all of yesterday and this morning, I've just been overwhelmed by the news of Robin Williams and his suicide. Just a classic example of the tortured clown. And there's so many things we don't understand. And as a Christian, as a believer in the sovereignty of God, as someone who takes my Bible seriously, sometimes I just think, God, what are you doing? Why why does this happen? It doesn't make sense. As so often, and you'll have picked up that I'm a fan, but C.S. Lewis nailed the issue for me. Um, in his book, A Grief Observed, which interestingly was published while he was alive under a different name. There's the original, N.W. Clark, uh, which uh, for C.S. Lewis fans is a little in-joke. Um, but it was only posthumously that it was uh, released, that it was by him. And it was a, basically an extraordinary memoir of, of bereavement, his bereavement of his wife, joy. Um, if you've never read it, I thoroughly recommend it, both you know, if you're going through this sort of thing, but also for friends who are knowing how to try and get ahead around it. I mean, one never can really understand what someone else's shoes feel like to walk in, but, but uh, one of the things that he's, he's quite brutally honest about in the book is, is, is what he feared about God was that God would turn out to be, in his words, a cosmic sadist. And he said this, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. No, the real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And actually, I think the life of David, at one level, raises as many questions as it answers on these lines. In the ways that the life of Jesus raises questions. I don't think I'll become an atheist. I I don't know, I might. It's possible. I certainly, I put it this way, I don't have plans. (laughs) I just worry uh, about what God's going to do to me next let alone other people I love. Can I trust him to keep me protected, whatever that means? 
Don't you think the same thoughts crossed David's mind in those 15 years on the run? Where's God going to send me next? What does this say about God that he sends me here and there and everywhere? Last week, seen the commemorations of the outbreak of uh, hostilities in the First World War, and um, I decided to pick up uh, Pat Barker's remarkable trilogy of novels set in the conflict. Um, I thoroughly recommend, well, I've just finished the first one, Regeneration. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. It's uh, about the patients in Craig Lockhart Hospital uh, in Edinburgh, uh, which is where uh, officers... Uh, suffering from shell shock, as they called it, were first being treated. And one of the the doctors there was a remarkable man called William Rivers. Um, And there was an extraordinary time when, um, for a few months in 1917, various people were there, including Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, um, as well as one or two other people. So, um, you know, there was a real sort of artistic flowering. There was a sort of in-hospital magazine. One of the other patients uh, in this book is a fictitious character. He was a sort of gruff northerner who rose through the ranks to become an officer. So he wasn't from the sort of classic officer background. And um, a chap called Billy Pryor. And um, basically at one point, Rivers is just asking him to describe what he'd experienced in the trenches. And when um, Billy Pryor arrives in the hospital, he is unable to talk. And so one of the sort of therapies is to try and help him to talk again. And um, so here, um, uh, Rivers um, has asked him to describe the attack that uh, he had suffered. So he says, do you remember the attack? Yeah, it was exactly like any other attack. Rivers waited. Pryor looked so hostile that at first Rivers thought that he would refuse to go on, but then he raised the cigarettes to his lips and said, all right. Your watch is brought back by a runner, having been synchronized at headquarters. A long pause. You wait, you try to calm everybody down, anybody who's shitting himself and on the verge of throwing up, and you hope you won't be either doing either of those things yourself. Then you start the countdown. 10, 9, 8, so on. You blow the whistle. You climb the ladder. Then you double through a gap in the wire, lie flat, wait for everybody else to get out. Those that are left, there's already quite a heavy toll. And then you stand up. And you start walking. Not at the double. Normal speed. Normal walking speed. Those are the orders. Pryor started to smile. In a straight line. Across open country. In broad daylight. Towards a line of machine guns. He shakes his head. Oh, and of course, you're being shelled all the way. Absolutely absurd. But those were the orders. To refuse was to risk being shot for cowardice. To obey was to risk life and limb for king and country. It was insanity and a tragedy. It was a suicide mission. 
I hope I'm not being disrespectful here, but isn't that what God does when he calls his Messiah? Doesn't he send him on a suicide mission? Think about it this way. We've already focused on the way in which David didn't exactly choose to be God's anointed king or Messiah or Christ. He didn't wake up one morning and say, ah, yes, my ambition is to be the Christ. In fact, he was the last person anyone would have chosen, just a humble shepherd, the lowest of the low. But think of all the trouble this caused him. One, being resented by his brothers because he, the youngest, was picked out by God, just as happened to the patriarch, Joseph. And then being called to be the one to take on an enemy giant. And then being the focus of an insane jealousy in King Saul in a conflict that lasted a decade or more. It began, uh, it meant escaping in the night, hiding in caves, pretending to be insane, being misunderstood and despised, mocked and hated. It meant having to choose the path of integrity rather than the easy way out. Twice he had the chance to assassinate Saul. Twice he refused, despite the incomprehension of his men. Saul is just there in the cave. David could so easily have taken him out. And who would have blamed him? And then, to top it all, the weight of a nation's expectations and needs on his shoulders. Did he ask for any of that? And yet, at the same time, God chooses people with the passions already installed, if you like, for the things he calls them to, and the gifts... I do not for one minute think that David was a sort of shy, retiring type, do you? I mean, I'm sure he had ambitions and drive. He, he was a born leader of men. He was someone that was naturally looked up to. And he looked for action. That's how he was wired. Some people just are. They thrive in harm's way. David was one of these guys. David really was the right man for the job. I've got no doubt uh, about it. I'm sure there are many days he thought, yeah, this really is the job for me. But the point I'm making is simple. The troubles he faced were nearly all the direct consequence of being Messiah. He suffered not despite being the Messiah. He suffered because he was the Messiah. Do you see the point? And that is what makes it all the more confusing. What is God doing? And more to the point sometimes, where is God doing it? In other words, why isn't he here? I think the journey that David goes through in so many ways is a bit like that uh, cycle of orientation and disorientation and then having some new or sort of way of orienting things um, as we looked at with Walter Brueggemann's understanding of the Psalms. I, I think this Psalm, Psalm 22, comes slap bang in the middle of disorientation, doesn't it? And you can see that, you know, there are two key um, times of his suffering. The first we've already talked about in 1 Samuel, the years he was hounded by Saul and his thugs. We've already thought about that. But there's also the stage after Absalom revolts. Now, we saw yesterday how he was culpable in some ways. But the fact that Absalom revolts against him is is as much a reflection of Absalom's heart against God as it is against David. David. David was God's anointed, even though he was flawed. And boy, was he flawed. We saw that. 
But Absalom might have resented his dad, but he was unlikely to revolt against him and lead an army against him if he wasn't the Messiah. So the suffering and the pain that David felt, yes, was much more gray rather than black and white. He, he was much more culpable for some of it. And yet still, it was the consequence of the role he had. So let's see how that might give us some context to this psalm. The first half, I've called it in the face of abandonment, despair, or so it seems. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? How, How many times do I have to say this, Lord? I cry out by day, by night. I don't get an answer. I don't get sleep. I can imagine him praying that in a cave at night, shivering and alone. It's not hard to think about, is it? And it's what it felt like. That's where the evidence seemed to point. There he is in a cave, abandoned and ignored. Now, the classic atheist response to that is obvious, isn't it? (laughs) You're not being abandoned and ignored by God because God was never there in the first place. You're simply coming to terms with reality. It's what the atheist would say, isn't it? Get with the program. Deal with it. We're alone in the universe. Get over it. But that's not David's problem. You see, his problem is that he knows God has history. Verse 3. You're enthroned as the Holy One. You're the the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted. And guess what? You delivered. See, there is a God. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted, were not put to shame. Do you see? Delivered, saved, not put to shame. This God is no theoretical supposition. He's a God who intervenes. He's Israel's God, Yahweh. God got Samuel, the last of the judges, the first of the great prophets, to anoint David with oil. The Spirit came on him. Is he losing his faith? No, he's just confused. It's a sign of his faith that he's asking these questions. He knows and trusts that God acts. So the problem is, why not now? And what's more, he did it for Israel... The whole people. What about me? I'm the anointed one. And yet, look how he feels, verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm nothing. Scorned by everybody. Despised. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. What a ridiculous thing that is. Let him deliver him. Okay, let's see. We'll sit back and watch. Okay, this will be good sport. The hardest thing here is that his accusers seem to know exactly what's on his mind, don't they? They attack him at his point of acutest weakness. They don't go around saying, oh, look, there's no God. No, they say, he trusts him. Okay, let's see. It's the classic bully's tactic, isn't it? 
aim for where someone is weakest. And it chips away at the doubts that plague David. He's always sought to trust God. He says, you, do. you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust you, even at your mother's breast. In other words, he's brought up like this. Like Timothy with his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. So with David. From childhood, he was brought up to believe. God's a reality. He went to Caesar and G-Force. He had great youth workers, perhaps like we have. He was brought up to believe. And then bang, adulthood, anointing, abandoned. And there are times when, you know, uh, his trusting in God put David in good stead, aren't they? You know, after all, the great triumph of the defeat of Goliath, that was a real testimony to his trust in the God who delivers. Why else tackle a prize fighter with a, without any armor while still just a lad? Why else refuse to wear Saul's exquisite state-of-the-art armor? He trusted in God, and God delivered him. So now, in verse 11, he prays, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. He's there alone in the cave, in the wilderness, abandoned. He's now, as they say in political circles, he's toxic. No one wants to go near him. But it's not just the isolation he endures, it's the enemies. In the next few verses, he describes them as encircling bulls and roaring lions, dogs and villains. And we saw the other morning how, you know, that was the perfect description of the night uh, Michal, his wife, helped him escape as those soldiers were, <coughs> were, were uh, uh, waiting for them outside. And the result is overwhelming. Verse 14, he's poured out like water. His whole body feels dehydrated and emaciated. His mouth is dry, his, ex- his bones exposed like a victim of famine. This is a description of a penniless outlaw trying to survive in caves and forests while constantly keeping on the move, never resting, never stopping, hardly eating, rarely drinking, never safe. Or rather, he should have been safe. He should have been tucked up in bed at home. Oh, he must have longed for his bed with Michal, not skulking in a cave. He was the Messiah. Is this to happening to him because God has forsaken him, just as God did to Saul? Turn back to 2 Samuel 15 briefly, would you? Just keep a finger in Psalm 22. We won't be going there for very long, but 2 Samuel 15. And this is in the second sort of major episode of his suffering. Okay, so here he is doing a runner from Jerusalem because Absalom, his son, has taken up arms against him. But notice the language he uses to Zadok, the priest, uh, about the ark in verse 25, chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. Then the king said, 
to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. This is David in real crisis. He's trying to interpret the times. He's to work, trying to work out what on earth is going on. Why is all this happening? Uh, but do you notice, it, it, he's not trying to say, oh, yeah, well, uh, tr- trying to understand Absalom here. He's, he's trying to understand God. Is it because I've fallen out of favor with Yahweh that this is happening? Is it because I've been forsaken? I think the most poignant verse in this little section must be verse 30. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. David the king flees literally on foot and in tears. It's all over. You see, David had known suffering from very early on. If I can put it like this, he was acquainted with sorrows. Almost from the beginning. Is this happening to him because God has forsaken him? No. It's happening to him because he is the Messiah. Because God chose him to be king even while Saul was on the throne. God chose him to be king even when a son revolts against him and tries to take the throne by force. No, but God chose him to be the king. He is the king. He is the one God anointed. God's spirit is with him. So is this like Billy Pryor's commanding officers in Pat Barker's regeneration, sending the men over the top, day in, day out, on a futile suicide mission? God's anointed David for tragedy and pain. Is that it? Well, of course, the big difference between God and First World War generals is that God knows what he's doing. Also, that his ways are just and perfect, and that he has a purpose in it all, even if it's not possible to understand it in the storms. David's mission, you see, is not futile. And I just wonder whether it was just not so much realizing as remembering, recalling this that lies behind the very subtle shift of tone from verse 19 onwards. I don't know whether you picked this up as it was read. Basically, the first half of the psalm is, is very, very dark. And then somehow, it just very slowly, very sort of, you know, baby steps begins to shift. Now, now he's still asking for deliverance. And he says, do not be far from me, from verse 19 onwards. Come quickly. Deliver me my life from the sword and the dogs. Rescue me from the lions and the oxen. No, no, the the request, the prayer hasn't changed. But do you see how the appeal is a little less uncertain? So in verse 19, 
You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. You are. Tim Keller has a little helpful line about this. He says, Worry is not believing God will get it right, and bitterness is believing God got it wrong. Worry is not believing that God will get it right. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. I'm prone to both those. And I think David is recognizing something crucial. He doesn't need to worry. God will get it right because, you see, in principle, his own suffering is not a sign of God getting things wrong. That's the shock. Hard, though, that will always feel because there is a purpose to it. You see, God is not a sort of incompetent First World War strategist. He is the sovereign creator of the cosmos who has built justice into the very marrow of reality. And so in the second half, or sort of last third, if you like, of the psalm, we see in the face of fear, there is faith. So from verse 22, the tone is very different. The tenses have changed. Do you notice that? All of a sudden, we're in the future. This is not what might happen or what might not happen. This is what will happen. I will declare, I will praise. There you have it again. Do you see evangelism and worship coupled together? I'll praise you and I'll tell other people about you. But it goes beyond what David himself has faced. Just like his longing to share his experience of forgiveness yesterday with others, he wants to share his experience of deliverance. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. It's a very different tone from verse 1, don't you think? And then the tenses change. Is this written after his deliverance? Well, there's no indication. Instead, what you have is what might be called the prophetic past. In other words, a future is described as if it's already happened in the past tense, even though it's still to come, but it's written in the past tense because it's guaranteed. So we might as well talk about it having happened. Do you get the idea? So verse 24, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Do you see? This is a direct answer to those pleas from the start. But there's a little interesting phrase there. He has not scorned the, do you get it? Suffering of the afflicted one. Despised and insulted by the people around him, but not by God. David is confident of that fact. But here's the shock and the logic behind David's confidence. God's afflicted one is God's anointed one. The shock of the whole Bible Old and New Testaments, is that those ideas are not incompatible. The afflicted one is the anointed one. And the anointed one is the afflicted one. 
the, la- the lamb is also the lion. And then the psalm sort of tumbles towards resounding joy and praise. David has preached to himself in his sorrow and anguish, and this has turned him round to confident faith. He has reoriented his faith through his disorientation. And at its heart, and I think this is where it really gets exciting, at its heart is David's realization of what will result from his own suffering. He doesn't know how. He's not clear about what the connection will be, but look at what will happen when people praise God for his deliverance in fulfillment of his vows. Verse 25, 26. 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. You see, God's lavish grace is enjoyed by the most vulnerable. And then verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. God's sovereign authority is acknowledged by the whole world, from the rulers and princes down. No, there's no sort of inverted snobbery here. The rich and powerful get to feast as well. But only when they bow down in worship. The problem with the rich and powerful is not so much that they're rich and powerful, but they're usually too proud. Then there's something really weird. Verse 29, all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. How's that possible? Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. You see, God's eternal rule is acknowledged by those who died. Do you see that? The inability to keep oneself alive seems an odd way to describe human mortality, but that's basically it. We are unable to keep ourselves alive. Which highlights the key difference, or one key difference, between us and God. Keeping us alive or bringing us back to life is just a doddle for him. Just click the fingers and it's done. And then we reach this resounding climax, and what a way to finish, what a transformation from the opening words of this psalm, from an overwhelming sense of despair and forsakenness to a resounding cry of triumphant praise. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now, hopefully, your minds will have been buzzing and making connections left, right, and center. I hope so. Because Psalm 22 is one of the most astonishing, richest chapters in the Bible. And it forces us to go on a time-traveling journey from one David to a greater David. Because you see, at precisely the same time that God pours his heart out, uh, David pours his heart out to God. So, from the bottom up to God, direction of the psalm, at the same time, God uses it 
to speak from top down to us. And just as David pours out his heart, so God addresses us about David's greater son. Because David's devotional, desperate, despairing even psalm is simultaneously God's prophetic voice. And the point I've been trying to stress is that it is not simply a matter of individual prophecies of things that will happen to Jesus. You see, like his clothes being divided in some sort of satanic tombola, or Jesus being taunted about God not rescuing him while the life seeped out on him on the cross. I mean, we, we can see those and identify them immediately, hopefully. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot here that, that touches on very specific and individual moments in the passion narrative of the Gospels. And that is all true, but what I'm trying to get at is the principle at the heart of David's entire life and experience. And that is the necessity of messianic suffering. Do you remember the greatest Bible study ever? Well, there were two, actually, both in the same evening. One with those two on the road to Emmaus, and then the other later on that evening with the others back in the ranch, as it were. This is what Jesus said to the people back in Jerusalem. This is what I told you about while I was still alive. I mean, you, know, you can imagine Jesus' frustration, can't you? I mean, he's been through, he's gone to hell and back. He said, I told you about this. Why are you so surprised? <laughs> this is what he says. I, I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Do you get a sense that actually Psalm 22 more or less touches all those bases? But more importantly, Jesus is saying, it had to be like this. This is what the Old Testament, including the Psalms, said must be fulfilled, that the Messiah must suffer. Now, that's impossible to understand. You see, Christs do not get crucified, do they? Not successful Christs. I mean, it's like saying, for a king to be really effective, he must be executed. I don't think Machiavelli would have much time for that thought. Machiavelli would suggest for kings to be really successful, they should execute various rivals. Christs do not get crucified. That's ridiculous. No wonder the disciples didn't get it. You know, when Peter was first told about it, I mean, he's just, he's just worked out the biggest news in history. You are the Christ. And then Jesus takes them aside and says, yes, I must be handed over to the chief priests, tried, executed. Oh, by the way, I'll rise again on the third day. But you mustn't do that. Get behind me, Satan. Not to go to the cross is satanic. 
The Christ must suffer these things. And then when Paul preached to the Jews and Gentiles, they didn't get it either. The crucified Christ, Paul the other one, it's either scandalous or stupidity itself. But Paul persevered. Because the crucified Christ brings the salvation for the world, the means to forgiveness, that will bring about great praise in the assembly. You see, Christ's don't get crucified, do they? Or to put it in Psalm 22 terms, God's anointed ones don't become God's afflicted ones, do they? Except when they do. David's anointed put him on a collision course with Saul. Jesus' anointing put him on a collision course with Herod, Caesar, and Caiaphas simultaneously. But neither mission was futile or pointless. They both would lead to God's righteousness being available to all nations. It is not, of course, that uh, David himself brought that about. He was the shadow, the trailblazer, the first suffering Messiah. But as Jesus spoke to those two on the road to Emmaus, he showed that he himself was the substance, the fulfillment, the ultimate suffering Messiah. And then David was vindicated, you see, as God's king by his successful, although troubled, rule back in Jerusalem. God's purposes were accomplished in him. God had done it, David cried. And Jesus was supremely vindicated by rising from the death, dead. Death could not keep a hold of him. Because he was the anointed one. Yes, he was the afflicted one, but he was the anointed one. And do you see the resonances there with Psalm 22? Now, <laughs> this is where things get really amazing. And there are so many different ways of doing this, and I was sort of overwhelmed, and I've only got about five or ten minutes left. All I can do is just to point you to go off in lots of different directions. And I've struggled to find the right words to describe it. I've called it the splendor of messianic fulfillment, but that seems rather sort of paltry. <laughs> this is just mind-bogglingly big, as Douglas Adams once put it. Not about this, incidentally, but anyway. Now, one way you can do this is, is to look at uh, all the times this psalm is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, and uh, that's what I've done in the first table, uh, and I've gone through the psalm, worked out a, a number of, well, both the, uh, the um, actual explicit quotations there, they're in bold, and I've gone through and worked out some possible other um, allusions or uh, cross-references, one or two are a bit more tenuous than others, um, I'm not sort of you know, sort of suggesting this is hard and fast, but, but it's just a start. And there are so many threads to draw together in the life of Christ um, just from this one psalm, which came out of a genuine man's experience. But I want to leave you with something that really came home to me forcefully last week as I was doing this, and that is the idea that Jesus so clearly had Psalm 22 in his theological DNA. It provided him with, with a profound template 
for what he was going to endure in his ministry and in particular in his final hours and days. I mean, I, I, I wonder, you know, as a child growing up, you know, when it came to, you know, when they were going through the Psalms, maybe at home studies or in the synagogue, and I wonder if you would get chills when Psalm 22 came up to be the daily reading. He thought, I, I'm going to know about this. I think a good case can be made for this being one of the, the pillars of his self-identity. That the anointed one is the afflicted one. And, and I think we can see this hinted at at the words he spoke on the cross, the so-called last, seven last words. I mean, I think a good case can be made for um, the, uh, uh, the first and last verses of Psalm 22 forming the trajectory of Jesus' last words on the cross. Because on the cross, there's a sense in which Jesus himself travels from disorientation of an absolute form to reorientation. The anointed one becomes the afflicted one. But in the end, trust that he's the anointed one. He's conscious of his mission and his priorities, even as he hangs in agony. It is truly astonishing. So he offers, he offers forgiveness to people who don't know what they're doing. If you knew who this man was. I mean, that's evidence of his amazing grace and mercy and kindness, isn't it? That You just get a little taste of that in Psalm 22. It's a bit more tenuous, that link. And you see the character of grace in the extraordinary words to his mother and to John. To a mother who's watching her son die. And she says, you can't have me now. Here's your son. Not the same, of course. But to be thinking of her at that time and to be thinking of John and knowing how vulnerable she's going to be. Then the thief on the cross is told that he will be with Christ in paradise that very day. Now there is life after death for those who trust him. Isn't that what Psalm 22 alludes to? Psalm 22 verse 26. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. But then we find Jesus explicitly quoting the psalm, I think twice. The opening lines, why have you forsaken me? Now, the most chilling thing about this is that David felt that he was forsaken. And I have no doubt in my mind that that's what it felt like. Perhaps in his freezing cave, abandoned and alone, starving, desperate. But he wasn't forsaken. Verse 
for the Lord Jesus, it was different. And I think one of the reasons that he quotes Psalm 22 is, yes, to express profound disorientation, but also because it is, I, I can't think of an alternative verse in Scripture that comes close to articulating the experience that he was going through. I don't think any words could articulate it, to be honest. But Psalm 22, verse 1, comes the closest. And he shouts it out because that is what he was going through. He didn't just feel it. He was forsaken by God. A darkness came on the land. And you see, the one he called Father, he calls my God. It was anticipating that that caused him the terror of Gethsemane. Isn't it a mystery that so many Christian martyrs down the centuries, not all by any stretch, we mustn't have romanticized views of martyrdom, far from it, but, but it is amazing in Christian history how so many martyrs have gone to their deaths with an unreal supernatural joy almost. You certainly see that with Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. How is that possible when the Lord doesn't? Well, the Lord knew what was ahead. And he endured what was ahead precisely so that those who come to him would not have to endure it. Which changes the prospect of death fundamentally. But you see, I think that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 because just as David found his faith reoriented through the storm, there's a sense in which Jesus does too. Because you see, Psalm 22 does not end in verse 1. There is a process that goes through after it. He, you know, he goes through agony. He thirsts, for example, and that sort of picks up the psalm. He's insulted and hated. He's in excruciating pain. But in the end, there will be mission accomplished. Because you see, the psalm ends where Jesus' torment ends. Finished. Job done. Price paid. People forgiven. Done. And so there's a sense in which when Jesus cries out, it's Rico's favorite Greek word, isn't it? Tetelestai. He quotes that a lot, and rightly so, because it's a lovely word. It is finished. It is paid. It is alluding to verse 31. It's not so much he has done it as I have done it. And that is why I think his last words in Luke's gospel are words of faith. He's not lost his face, far from it, because nothing is left to be done. Yes, he, he has given completely of himself. He is depleted. He is broken. There's nothing left but 
to commit himself into the hands of his father. His father. It is done, and the temple curtain is torn into. The anointed one becomes the afflicted one and ends as the vindicated one. And on that note, we should end and bask, lost in wonder, love, and praise for what he has done. Finished. It was not a futile mission. It changed the world. Now, there are so many things I don't understand about it. And sometimes I do worry, if he let his son do this, what's he going to make me do? And the Lord calls on us to take up our cross and follow. And I do tremble at the thought. But Psalm 23 has reminded us that through the dark valley of our mortality, he is our shepherd. Psalm 59 reminded us that God is our refuge and strength through times of trouble, not to escape them, but to be protected through them. Psalm 32 and 51 reminds us that even when we fail, and that includes, get this, that includes the times when we fail to be faithful to him. When we do what Peter did and said, I don't know this man! Friends, brothers and sisters in the Middle East will be saying that. If we were in their shoes, someone bangs down the door. Are you his? Some of us will say, I never knew him. Psalm 32 reminds us, though, that when we come to him and I, you know, we waste away with guilt, we come to him and we are forgiven, just as Peter was. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed the flock. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times after three denials. 